This week on Daiwa, we're featuring Lyon County. Four kids are hanging out in a state park, but only one will leave. Welcome to Daiwa, the first Iowa-focused true crime podcast, where there's 99 counties and a murder in every one. These are your hosts, Beth LaValle and Allie Tulin. All right, Lyon County, Beth. The most... Let's do it. <laughs> it's the most northwestern county in Iowa. I don't think I knew that. And I don't think either of us have been to this part of Iowa, right? I don't think I have. Yeah, I know I've driven through, but for sure never stopped. Um, but I do think after researching this case that we're adding it to our list of places to visit when we're back. Yes, especially once we get our RV and travel the counties of <laughs> Iowa, we're doing it. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah, some fun facts about Lyon County. Um, so the land that makes up Lyon County was ceded to the federal government by the suit through a treaty signed on July 23rd, 1851. Uh, Rock Rapids is your biggest city in Lyon County with a population around 2,550 in 2010. And then, just super fun fact, the only Democrat to ever win in Lyon County was FDR. Crazy. Was that the only Democrat ever or the only Democratic president? No, I I believe ever. <laughs> that is wild. We can we can go back and research that, but fact check. I'm, I'm pretty sure ever. <laughs> yeah, fact check. <laughs> Man. Well, let's talk a little bit more about where specifically this murder took place. So, Gitche Manitou State Preserve is where our murder took place. The preserve contains some of the oldest exposed bedrock in the country. The state of Iowa first purchased uh, the 47 and a half acres for use as a quarry in 1916, but later transferred the area to a, the Board of Conservation. So it's basically just this big land mass um, in a park, and it has some prairie grass, and you can hang out, and it's very pretty. But kind of a fun fact here, it is named after the creator spirit in the, wait for it, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, <laughs> Anishinaabe Native American tradition, Gichi Manadu. So that literally means great spirit or great force of nature. And that is located in the furthest northwest corner of Iowa next to Sioux Falls. So it's a hiking trail, nature preserve, an area of outdoor recreation, and has the oldest exposed rock in the state. You know, Iowa has beautiful state parks, but this one does have a creepy air to it or vibe. You know, if you look up photos, the rock shelter is now graffitied and in ruins. Some say it is haunted, both because of the site um, being an Indian burial ground and because of the murders we're about to share with you. All right, so let's set the scene. Imagine it's 1973 in the heart of rural America. Richard Nixon is president. The U.S. had ended its involvement in the Vietnam War. And Elton John just released Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, a jam. Love it. It's Saturday night, and all you want to do is hang out with your best friends, lounging around town, and a spot for that's pretty well known for beer parties, for hanging out, smoking joints maybe, the Gitche Manitou Preserve is just the place to do that. 
So, down by the river, past the rock shelter, near the woods, a group of five teenagers played music, laughed, talked, and smoked a couple joints around a fire. Honestly, I wouldn't mind being there right now. Same. And so just to start off, you said there were five teenagers. I think we should mention that they were um, all from South Dakota, but remember that Gitchie Manitou is right on the state border of South Dakota and Iowa. But let's talk about the kids, who they were, and uh, what were their relationships. All right, so I will list the kids and their ages. Roger Essam is 17. Stuart Bade is 18. Dana Bade is 14. Michael Hadrath is 15. And then Sandra Chesky is 13. So the four boys were said to be best of friends. They hung out all the time. Some of them were neighbors. Um, Stuart and Dana were brothers. And Roger and Mike were best friends. And Roger had just started dating Sandra that year after meeting at a drive-in theater. Stuart, or Stu as we'll refer to him, often came on the dates with Roger and Sandra providing transportation. They were all easygoing, friendly, smart kids who just hung out together like any typical friend group in the 70s. I will say I was shocked by the different ages at first, but after finding out Stu and Dana were brothers, it made more sense, and then the age gap between Roger and Sandra was still pretty big. So we both read the book Kitschy Girl, which is an account of the story by Sandy and Phil Heyman after interviewing everyone involved. So after reading Kitschy Girl, Sandra said that Roger had assumed she was 15 or 16, and that was because she was always hanging out with an older friend, and when they first met, he just assumed they were the same ages, and they did go to different schools. Also, she looked older and acted more mature. But I think now that we have the scene and characters, we can go into what happened that fateful night. A group of teenagers is hanging out around a campfire after dusk. They're playing music and passing around a joint when they start to hear something coming from the tree line. So they stop to listen, but then they go back to their activities until they hear that again. So they're getting spooked after hearing twigs snapping and leaves crunching with some footsteps. It's kind of a mystery whether it's an animal in the forest or maybe something worse. But according to the survivor's account, they think they see two guys running. Roger was there sitting with his girlfriend Sandra, and he gets up and walks closer to these figures and yells, Who are you? What do you want? Three figures then appear atop a low ledge less than 20 feet from the group. And without any warning, one of them raises his gun and fires two shots. The group panics and runs in different directions. Roger was never seen by the group again. Another shot is fired. Dana is yelling for Stu, and Stu replies, he's been shot. Okay, let's pause quickly and just discuss where everyone is. So Roger is by the tree line and presumed dead. Mike, Roger's friend, grabbed Sandra and they ran together to the river's edge and are hiding behind a tree now. And Stu and Dana are somewhere in between the tree line and the river's edge, but Stu has also been shot. So next, these three men with a gun yell something like, We're the police. Come out with your hands up. And the teens are confused by this. They were drinking and smoking, but do you think the police would really shoot a teenager for that? These men weren't in any type of uniform either. Mike and Sandra come out from the tree and ask them not to shoot. However, one of the men, who's taller and has this Russian hat, pulls the trigger of his gun and hits Mike right in the shoulder. The men are now visible. Two are thin, and one is pretty fat. We find out that the bigger one is called JR, and the other two are Hatchet Face and The Boss. 
The men order Mike, Sandra, and Dana to walk. They're not sure where they're leading them. It's definitely not to the road. It's deeper into the woods. And they keep saying that, you know, this is some sort of drug raid because they saw them smoking pot together. Again, this is all according to the survivor's account, but this was when the three men said something about laws in Iowa being more strict on drugs. And that's the first time some of the kids realized that they were in Iowa instead of the South Dakota side of the park. The men then ask how many girls are in the group, and they take Sandra because she's the only girl. She's then handcuffed with some sort of wire and told to get in the men's pickup. But when she presses one of the men, who's called the boss, he agrees to untie her for some reason. She also asks him what happened to Roger, and he replies that he's only been hit with a tranquilizer gun. The last thing Sandra sees is Mike, Dana, and Stu with a man named JR and his gun following them. I'm amazed that Stu is somehow still alive and forced to get up and join Mike and Dana. And remember, Stu is the driver and Dana's brother. He's the one who was shot right after Roger. Mike is also shot at this point, and he's walking with them in a line with his shoulder shot. Yeah, that is crazy how resilient they are, probably with adrenaline pumping through them. So what happens to the boys, according to the survivor's account, is that two of the men, J.R. and Hatchetface, decide to shoot all three boys. They then take Stu's van and plan to drop it on a street near an abandoned house they used close to Sioux Falls. So that means we have Sandra alone in the car with the man called the boss, and the other men, J.R. and Hatchetface, are driving Stu's van. Right. At some point, the boss decides he needs gas and stops at a nearby farmhouse with a large red gas tank next to one of the buildings, and then continues to the abandoned house to meet J.R. and Hatchetface. The two other men were already at the house when the boss arrived with Sandra. He left her in the car to talk with the others. Eventually, J.R. gets in the pickup truck, and the other two men walk away like they know what's going to happen next. And J.R. then rapes the 13-year-old Sandra. I cannot imagine being a 13-year-old thinking you're getting busted for drinking and doing drugs and then seeing your friends get shot, and then to make everything even more horrible, getting raped by a man you think is a cop. Right. It is a horrible thing to think about, and to think that she was probably terrified that she was doing something wrong and that this was some sort of punishment for her is so sad. So after JR gets back out of the pickup and the other two men reappear, they are discussing who should take care of Sandra and it's finally decided that the boss will be the one and JR and Hatchetface leave again. Here's an important note to the story. JR was supposed to be in the Minnehaha County Jail at the time this went down. He had been incarcerated on various convictions, but the jail had a work release program where an inmate could sign in and out and return to lockup following one of their shifts. So JR was working at a towing company at that time, which gave him these flexible hours to get away with, and he had checked out of jail at 6.30 a.m. on November 17th and clocked out of work at 3 p.m. that day but he didn't check back into jail until 2.30 a.m. on November 18th. Mm-hmm. And after Hatchetface dropped JR off at the jail, he disposed of their guns in a nearby lake. So meanwhile, the boss had Sandra, and he was supposed to get rid of her. However, at some point after 4.30 a.m., he asked where she lived. 
So Sandra hesitantly gave him her address, and after driving there, he just let her go. Once home, she tries waking up her older brother Bob, she tells him the story, and he says he doesn't believe the men were real cops. But knowing that the men know where they live, he tells her to sleep on it before she calls the cops. Sandra wakes up the next morning and tries calling Roger. One of his siblings answers and says he didn't return last night. The second time she tries calling Roger, his brother answers and says he'll come get Sandra. He then introduces Sandra to the detective who had already told the family that Roger was dead. Sandra is questioned and the detectives end up with a 10-page account of what took place the night before. One thing that's really unique about this case is that there really was no motive. The kids had never met the three men before, and everyone was wondering why was Sandra still alive. This really stumped the detectives as they were trying to work on this case. Right, and it makes Sandra look a little suspicious too, since she's the only survivor. Definitely. So this was also the day that Sandra met the sheriff, Craig Vinson. Sheriff Vinson would spend the days after the murders driving Sandra around to try to locate the farmhouse where the boss had stopped for gas. During these drives, they really got to know each other, and Vinson constantly stood behind Sandra's story while others weren't as convinced the girl was telling the truth. Finally, about 10 days after the murders, during one of the drives, Sandra spotted the boss driving a white pickup that was pulling out of the farmhouse he had taken her to. Vinson turned on his patrol car lights and pulled the man over. He complied. This man was Alan Fryer. They took Alan in, and he admitted that he and his brothers, J.R. and David, were hunting pheasants in Gitche, Manitou the day of the murders. However, when J.R. and David were also questioned, the brothers started pointing fingers at each other for the murders. On December 1st, 1973, all three brothers were arraigned and charged with four counts of murder. Bond was set at $400,000 per man, amounting to $100,000 for each boy they had killed. The sentencing was J.R. James Fryer, three life sentences and one eight-year term for manslaughter. Alan Fryer, four counts of first-degree murder. David Fryer, one count of first-degree murder. The Fryer brothers were all in their 20s when charged. I cannot believe this case gets even more insane. But then we find out there was a jailbreak. Yeah, so the Lyon County Jail was in Rock Rapids, Iowa, and Alan Fryer, the boss, had noticed that the bolts were not secure. It does say in the book Gitchy Girl that Alan Fryer did not have a high IQ, but he was very good at mechanical things. So when he noticed this bolt wasn't secure, he found a hook to fit around the bolt, and on June 18th, 1974, he swung his cell door open. Uh, He then grabbed the keys, let his brother JR also out, and they went on the run. So Sheriff Vinson actually lived on site with his family. His wife served the prisoners their meals every day, and right away she noticed that the uh, jail cell for Alan Fryer was empty the next morning. The two Fryer brothers didn't get away for long. In less than a week, they were spotted in Wyoming after hitting a pedestrian in their stolen vehicle. The pedestrian was not seriously injured, but it drew enough attention to get them back in custody in Iowa. So I think we just want to kind of end here with a summary of where everyone is after these murders. So to start with, Sandra Chesky. Um, After the murders, you know, Sandra struggled to fit in with the community. She did say the Bade and SM families wrapped her in their arms afterward. 
Her mother was also supportive, but she was working two jobs and often gone. So after all these years of trauma and feeling alone, Sandra did finally find herself, and she is now married and has two kids. Mm -hmm. Sheriff Craig Vinson passed on June 28th, 2015. He was 96. Uh, He had kind of a, a wild life. So during World War II, Craig was a welder in Bellevue for Martin Bomber, building B-29 airplanes, which included the Enola Gay, which was the first aircraft to drop an atomic bomb. So that's a fun fact about Craig, but he was elected the Lyon County Sheriff in 1968 and stayed in the position until 1981. And to end it, the Fryer brothers are all currently in Fort Madison Penitentiary. Only Alan agreed to meet years later with Sandra. She simply asked why he didn't kill her that night so many years ago. And he said she reminded him too much of his stepdaughter, who was about the same age. All right, now let's move on to our segment with TAPS. All right, hi. Hello. Um, Let's talk about Lyon County. Let's talk about the 1970s. So if I'm doing my math right. You probably would have been a teenager in the 1970s. Is that correct? I think I would have been the same age as the rape victim. Okay. Can you just describe what it was like living in Iowa in the 1970s? Well, I mean... Um, as, yeah, like as a kid, kind of like parents weren't really as protective, I'm guessing, and no, kind of just roam about much, the town. Right. There wasn't as much talk about you know, abductions and stuff like that. So, I mean, if you wanted to smoke dope and drink beer or do whatever, you went out into parks and fields and, you know, cars were obviously big. You know, music was on the car radio or on your eight-track player. It was just, and people would would be more trusting of other people, especially in rural Iowa. Did you hear about these murders when they happened? If I did, I don't remember it. I would have been probably, uh, what what time of year did they happen? The fall, like in November. Yeah, I was probably a sophomore in high school. Does that sound right? Yeah, just started my sophomore year of high school. So um, in this story, we have like a bunch of young kids and these people are pretending to be cops. If someone is you know, kind of wondering whether a person is or isn't a cop, what should they do? We used to teach, you can ask for an ID card or with a picture ID. Most cops have a departmental issued ID card, but the quickest and safest way is to tell the cop, I just, hey, I need to make sure everything's on the up and up and call 911 and say, hey, this cop has me at such and such location. And 911 would verify it and say, oh, yeah, there's a police officer there. His name is officer so-and-so, whatever. And that would be done. We often taught young, especially women, that if they were pulled over by somebody that they weren't sure of, to drive slowly to a populated area or well-lit area and dial 911 and say, police officer is trying to stop me on Highway 35 and whatever street. And 911 would verify it. I... This is going to sound nuts, but I've actually never heard that before. I did not know you could call 911 and verify that. Yeah, you I can haven't call, either. 
you can call 911 and just verify. And if the officer is in, you know, physically in distance with you where he is listening to you or hearing you or she is, you just tell the officer, listen, I, I just want to make sure you are who you say you are and be polite about it. And just call 911 and say, I have an officer asking me questions at this location. Do you have an officer there? And, the op- you know, the officers have to hit out on 911 wherever they're on a location or something. And so the 911 operator would verify it for you. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of talking about how the Friar brothers never really spoke of a motive that they had to kill these four young boys. Have you ever had a case where there really wasn't a motive or what, what would you think the Friar brothers actual motive was? Well, I think it was to get the dope. I think they oh. knew the kids were smoking dope and they thought they were going to grab their dope from them. Uh, the Friar brothers had been in trouble in the past. The so one was in a halfway house already. And I think they were just going to take their dope away from them. And I think it just escalated. Yeah, we talked a lot about like how it was kind of just a power trip in general of once you do one thing, it kind of led to another that led to another. And it was just this whole like consumption of they wanted the power in this situation and it got out of control. And there's a lot of still pretty emotional feelings in Lyon County about it. I had a kid in a criminal justice class a couple of years ago write a paper. He was from Lyon County and he wrote a paper on this murder, a murders. And uh, he said uh, he had gone into the Lyon County Sheriff's Office and talked to them. And obviously I'm sure all the deputies and, and sheriff are gone that investigated it. But there was still a lot of emotion about this murder. It was very senseless. Well, I think a lot of the family and everything is still in Lyon County. Well, and the female victim who lived testified against David Fryer at a parole hearing in 2016. Um, He was trying to get his sentence reduced from life without parole to life with the possibility of parole. And she testified against him and the parole board denied him. So you don't think that any of the Fryer brothers are ever going to be granted any parole or anything? No, Iowa eliminated the death penalty in the very early 1960s. It was one of the very first states to do it. And the legislature at that time, I think Governor Hughes was the governor who introduced uh, that legislation to the legislature. The payback, if you will, or the compromise with people that were pro-death penalty was if people were convicted of first-degree murder, it would be life without parole. They would never have the possibility of getting out. Good to know. Um, We also want to talk about how when Sandra was questioned, you know, she had one sheriff who really believed in her, but a lot of people in town weren't, weren't buying her story. Right. Um, when questioning a 13 year old, are there any special practices or are there any that would have been applicable back then? Well, now um, there's actually legislation and many young victims have to be interviewed by a forensic interviewer that understands child welfare issues. So nowadays you would take her to um, a a child place, uh, the local one is called Project Harmony, and a a forensic interviewer who is trained to interview children would interview her. And the other thing is there's so much more ability by the cops to be sensitive to these types of crimes. Back in the early 70s, and I can tell you, back when I first started on the job, it wasn't that sensitive. And, it, and the questioning would have been a lot more brutal and a lot more direct. Now it's, it's handled much, much differently. We have uh, a thing called a SANE now, a uh, sexual assault 
uh, nurse examiner who is an RN who's not a police officer who does the forensic collections and things at the hospital. I mean, it's just handled so much differently now. Do you have any idea what kind of psychiatric or psychological help someone like Sandra would get after an event like that? In today's world, it would be monumentous, and especially with the homicides attached to it. Um, In today's world, in most of the larger counties, there are victim assistance units that are assigned to the victim and provide all kinds of psychological help, uh, help during court testimony. They sit with, with the victims in trial. There's a, there's a statewide victim assistance unit, and then there are victim assistance units in the larger counties in the Midwest. So to, in today's world, she would have got plenty. I, I fear in 1973, she didn't get a lot. Yeah, it sounded like almost none. Right. So happy to hear that those changes were made. And then going back to the Fryer brothers and how uh, J.R. and Alan escaped jail, have you ever experienced someone escaping jail? What are like the first steps you would do there? Yeah, I mean, we've had people, uh, I've had people escape an interview room in a police department, and then we've had people escape uh, jails. Prisons, I mean, there are prison escapes too, but they seem to be less frequent. I think the prisons lock down a little bit better Jails are very transitory, so it's harder to lock them down because people are coming and going all the time. But, uh, you know, they put an all-points bulletin out for the person. Uh, I had one escapee who was being questioned for a felony. It wasn't my case, but got out of the police building, out of the interview room, and then stole the police car downstairs and took off of it. We chased him all over the city. So it happens. Sounds fun. Wild. Um, and then why why did sheriffs live in jails like in the first place? How did that happen and why did it stop? In the smaller counties in Iowa, the sheriff ran the jail and his wife was usually the matron of the jail. So she would cook, do the laundry, all that kind of stuff to keep the jail and they would get additional compensation for doing that. And that practice didn't stop until... I would say there were still counties in the middle 80s that were still doing it. In the middle 80s, there was a big reform movement in jails, especially in Iowa. And now jails in Iowa have to meet state standards. There's a state inspection team that comes out, whatever. And so it's been professionalized a lot more now, even in the smaller counties. I think those are all the questions we have. What are your final thoughts on this case? Do you have any? Uh, um, just senseless. I mean. A couple of freaking, I guess I really can't call the names I want to call them, but just doing senseless things that took people's lives just needlessly. And, uh, you know, I don't know what to do with people like that. I mean, it's almost, they're, they're almost antisocial personalities where you can't have them out in society. So, you know, justice prevailed, the system worked, and they will never see the light of free day again. Good final thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Like, I just want to say, like, ditto. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it is just amazing to me how some human beings can do the things that they do. And, I mean, really, to steal a bag of weed, you'd go kill a bunch of people. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, the only one who gave me any hope was Alan Fryer, but then... Was he the one that, that had the lower IQ and... Yeah, but he was the one who dropped Sandra off at her house, but then... I mean, then so right he had after he gave remorse 
after it was over with. He did, and Sandra met with him, and he said the only reason he dropped her off was because she reminded him too much of his stepdaughter or something. But then right after he gives you a little hope, then he goes and escapes jail, so. Yeah, I mean, although the escape from jail, I mean, is understandable. I mean, there's no hope, so you're going to try to do what you can do. Yeah. Um, As a side note, the greatest jail escape I ever saw was in Omaha, in Douglas County. Two guys convicted of a hit murder on a real estate guy. There was a bunch of arson for hire stuff going on. They were in the Douglas County Jail. They got a book, operator's manual for a twin engine airplane. They read through the manuals. They escaped the jail. And I can't remember exactly how their escape worked. But they worked their way to the Millard Airport and stole a two-engine, twin-engine plane and flew it. And flew, they were flying to Canada, and they got all the way into North Dakota, and they got lost, and the Red River flows the wrong way. So they were following the river, they thought, upstream into Canada, and it was actually leading them downstream back into South Dakota. That is the best escape story. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And they, they landed the plane. They lived through it. Oh my God. And neither of them have flown before. No, and this was long before, you know, video games and flight simulators and all that stuff. No, they just read the book while they were in jail. Insane. That's like Shawshank Redemption. Is that that movie <laughs> where they escape jail? Yeah. It's like that level. <laughs> One of the guys named Hochstein. I can't remember the other guy's name. And they killed a guy named Abood in the thing. I think it was in the, I want to say it was in the middle 70s. Wow. There you go. Crazy. Well, thank you for your time, Taps. We'll talk to you next time. Okay. See ya. Bye. Bye. So, Beth, I think the best way to end this is just with a quick update um, of something we found in the Des Moines Register from 2013. That year, Sandra visited Sheriff Vincent in Rock Rapids, Iowa, and they hadn't seen each other in decades. And there's this big photo of them, you know, embracing, and he just is quoted saying, I never thought you were a bad girl and that he had checked in on her through the years to make sure she was doing all right. And he was sure she didn't know that. Yeah. A really, I mean, kind of bittersweet, but, um, you know, it's, it's a nice wrap to, to know that they got to meet up again and that they still had the same feelings for each other. So, Mm -hmm. so that's it on Lyon County. Oh, hello there. As a marketer, I hate promotions like this. Same and same. But I love content. Me too. So if you like our content, give us a like, follow, share, subscribe, note, fax, literally anything you think would help us continue making Daiwa a success. Thank you, thank you, thank you.